Chapter 7 of The Tragedy of the Korosko. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. The Tragedy of the Korosko by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter 7. There was nothing to show them as they journeyed onwards that they were not on the very spot that they had passed at sunset upon the evening before. The region of fantastic black hills and orange sand which bordered the river had long been left behind, and everywhere now was the same brown, rolling, gravelly plain, the ground swell with the shining rounded pebbles upon its surface and the occasional little sprouts of sage-green camel-grass. Behind and before it extended to where, far away in front of them, it sloped upwards towards a line of violet hills. The sun was not high enough yet to cause the tropical shimmer, and the wide landscape, brown with its violet edging, stood out with a hard clearness in that dry, pure air. The long caravan straggled along at the slow swing of the baggage camels. Far out on the flanks rode the vedettes, halting at every rise, and peering backwards with their hands shading their eyes. In the distance their spears and rifles seemed to stick out of them, straight and thin like needles in knitting. "'How far do you suppose we are from the Nile?' asked Cochrane. He rode with his chin on his shoulder, and his eyes straining wistfully to the eastern skyline. "'A good fifty miles,' Belmont answered. "'Not so much as that,' said the Colonel. "'We could not have been moving more than fifteen or sixteen hours, and a camel does not do more than two and a half miles an hour, unless it is trotting. That would only give about forty miles.' but still it is i fear rather far for a rescue i don't know that we are much the better for this postponement what have we to hope for we may just as well take our gruel never say die cried the cheery irishman there's plenty of time between this and midday hamilton and headley of the camel corps are good boys and they'll be after us like a streak They'll have no baggage camels to hold them back. You can lay your life on that. Little did I think when I dined with them at mess that last night, and they were telling me all their precautions against a raid, that I should depend upon them for our lives. Well, we'll play the game out, but I'm not very hopeful, said Cochrane. Of course we must keep the best face we can before the women. I see that Tipitilly is as good as his word, for those five niggers and the two brown johnnies must be the men he speaks of. They all ride together and keep well up, but I can't see how they are going to help us. I've got my pistol back, whispered Belmont, and his square chin and strong mouth set like granite. If they try any games on the women— I mean to shoot them all three with my own hand, and then we'll die with our minds easy. Good man, said Cochrane, and they rode on in silence. 
none of them spoke much a curious dreamy irresponsible feeling crept over them it was as if they had all taken some narcotic drug the merciful anodyne which nature uses when a great crisis has fretted the nerves too far they thought of their friends and of their past lives in the comprehensive way in which one views that which is completed a subtle sweetness mingled with the sadness of their fate they were filled with the quiet serenity of despair it's devilish pretty said the colonel looking about him i always had an idea that i should like to die in a real good yellow london fog you couldn't change for the worse i should have liked to have died in my sleep said sadie how beautiful to wake up and find yourself in the other world there was a piece that hetty smith used to say at the college say not good-night but in some brighter world wish me good-morning the puritan aunt shook her head at the idea it's a terrible thing to go unprepared into the presence of your maker said she it's the loneliness of death that is terrible said mrs belmont if we and those whom we loved all passed over simultaneously we should think no more of it than of changing our house if the worst comes to the worst we won't be lonely said her husband we'll all go together and we shall find brown and headingly and stuart waiting on the other side the frenchman shrugged his shoulders he had no belief in survival after death but he envied the two catholics the quiet way in which they took things for granted he chuckled to think of what his friends in the cafe cubat would say if they learned that he had laid down his life for the christian faith sometimes it amused and sometimes it maddened him and he rode onwards with alternate gusts of laughter and of fury nursing his wounded wrist all the time like a mother with a sick baby across the brown of the hard pebbly desert there had been visible for some time a single long thin yellow streak extending north and south as far as they could see it was a band of sand not more than a few hundred yards across and rising at the highest to eight or ten feet but the prisoners were astonished to observe that the arabs pointed at this with an air of the utmost concern and they halted when they came to the edge of it like men upon the brink of an unfordable river it was very light dusty sand and every wandering breath of wind sent it dancing into the air like a whirl of midges the emir abderrahman tried to force his camel into it but the creature after a step or two stood still and shivered with terror the two chiefs talked for a little and then the whole caravan trailed off with their heads for the north and the streak of sand upon their left what is it asked belmont who found the dragman riding at his elbow why are we going out of our course drift sand mansoor answered every sometimes the wind bring it all in one long place like that to-morrow if a wind comes perhaps there will not be one grain left 
but all will be carried up into the air again. An Arab will sometimes have to go fifty or a hundred miles to go round a drift. Suppose he tries to cross, his camel breaks its legs, and he himself is sucked in and swallowed. How long will this be? No one can say. Well, Cochrane, it's all in our favour. The longer the chase, the better chance for the fresh camels. And for the hundredth time he looked back at the long, hard skyline behind them. There was the great, empty, dune-coloured desert, but where the glint of steel or the twinkle of white helmet for which he yearned. And soon they cleared the obstacle in their front. It spindled away into nothing as a streak of dust wood which has been blown across an empty room. It was curious to see that when it was so narrow that one could almost jump it, the Arabs would still go for many hundreds of yards rather than risk the crossing. Then, with good hard country before them once more, the tired beasts were whipped up, and they ambled on with a double-jointed jog-trot, which set the prisoners nodding and bowing in grotesque and ludicrous misery. It was fun at first, and they smiled at each other, but soon the fun had become tragedy as the terrible camel-ache seized them by spine and waist with its deep, dull throb which rises gradually to a splitting agony. "'I can't stand it, Sadie,' cried Miss Adams suddenly. "'I've done my best. I'm going to fall.' "'No, no, Auntie. You'll break your limbs if you do. Hold up just a little, and maybe they'll stop.' "'Lean back and hold your saddle behind,' said the Colonel. "'There.' You'll find that will ease the strain. He took the puggaree from his hat, and tying the ends together, he slung it over her front pommel. Put your foot in the loop, said he. It will steady you like a stirrup. The relief was instant, so Stevens did the same for Sadie. But presently one of the weary Dora camels came down with a crash. Its limbs stirred out as if it had split asunder and the caravan had come down to its old sober gait. "'Is this another belt of drift sand?' asked the colonel presently. "'No, it's white,' said Belmont. "'Here, Mansour, what is that in front of us?' But the dragman shook his head. "'I don't know what it is, sir. I never saw the same thing before.' Right across the desert from north to south there was drawn a white line, as straight and clear as if it had been slashed with chalk across a brown table. It was very thin, but it extended without a break from horizon to horizon. Tipitilli said something to the dragoman. "'It's the great caravan route,' said Mansoor. "'What makes it white, then?' "'The bones.' It seemed incredible, and yet it was true. For as they drew nearer, they saw that it was indeed a beaten track across the desert, hollowed out by long usage, and so covered with bones that they gave the impression of a continuous white ribbon. Long, snouty heads were scattered everywhere, and the lines of ribs were so continuous that it looked in places like the framework of a monstrous serpent. 
The endless road gleamed in the sun as if it were paved with ivory. For thousands of years this had been the highway over the desert, and during all that time no animal of all those countless caravans had died there without being preserved by the dry antiseptic air. No wonder, then, that it was hardly possible to walk down it now without treading upon their skeletons. "'This must be the route I spoke of,' said Stevens. "'I remember marking it upon the map I made for you, Miss Adams. Bedecker says that it has been disused on account of the cessation of all trade which followed the rise of the dervishes.' but that it used to be the main road by which the skins and gums of Darfur found their way down to Lower Egypt. They looked at it with listless curiosity, for there was enough to engross them at present in their own fates. The caravan struck to the south along the old desert track, and this Golgotha of a road seemed to be a fitting avenue for that which awaited them at the end of it. Weary camels and weary riders dragged on together towards their miserable goal. And now, as the critical moment approached, which was to decide their fate, Colonel Cochrane, weighed down by his fears lest something terrible should befall the women, put his pride aside to the extent of asking the advice of the renegade dragoman. The fellow was a villain and a coward but at least he was an oriental and he understood the arab point of view his change of religion had brought him into closer contact with the dervishes and he had overheard their intimate talk cochrane's stiff aristocratic nature fought hard before he could bring himself to ask advice from such a man and when he at last did so it was in the gruffest and most unconciliatory voice. "'You know the rascals, and you have the same way of looking at things,' said he. "'Our object is to keep things going for another twenty-four hours. After that it does not much matter what befalls us, for we shall be out of the reach of rescue. But how can we stave them off for another day?' "'You know my advice,' the dragoman answered. I have already answered it to you. If you will all become as I have, you will certainly be carried to Khartoum in safety. If you do not, you will never leave our next camping-place alive. The colonel's well-curved nose took a higher tilt, and an angry flush reddened his thin cheeks. He rode in silence for a little, for his Indian service had left him with a curried-prone temper which had an extra touch of Cayenne added to it by his recent experiences. It was some minutes before he could trust himself to reply. "'We'll set that aside,' said he at last. "'Some things are possible, and some are not. This is not.' "'You need only pretend.' "'That's enough,' said the colonel abruptly. Mansoor shrugged his shoulders. What is the use of asking me if you become angry when I answer? If you do not wish to do what I say, then try your own attempt. At least you cannot say that I have not done all I could to save you. I am not angry, the colonel answered after pause in a more conciliatory voice. But this is climbing down rather farther than we care to go. Now, what I thought is this. 
You might, if you choose, give this priest or mullah, who is coming to us, a hint that we really are softening a bit upon the point. I don't think, considering the hole that we are in, that there can be very much objection to that. Then, when he comes, we might play up and take an interest and ask for more instruction, and in that way hold the matter over for a day or two. Don't you think that would be the best game? You will do as you like, said Mansoor. I have told you once for ever what I think. If you wish that I speak to the mullah, I will do so. It is the fat little man with the grey beard upon the brown camel in front there. I may tell you that he has a name among them for converting the infidel, and he has a great pride in it, so that he would certainly prefer that you were not injured if he thought that he might bring you into Islam. Tell him that our minds are open, then, said the colonel. I don't suppose the padre would have gone so far, but now that he is dead I think we may stretch a point. You go to him, Mansoor and if you work it well, we will agree to forget what is past. By the way, has Tipitilli said anything? No, sir. He has kept his men together, but he does not understand yet how he can help you. Neither do I. Well, you go to the Moolah, then, and I'll tell the others what we have agreed. The prisoners all acquiesced in the colonel's plan, with the exception of the old New England lady, who absolutely refused even to show any interest in the Mohammedan creed. I guess I am too old to bow the knee to Baal, she said. The most that she would concede was that she would not openly interfere with anything which her companions might say or do. And who is to argue with the priest? asked Fardet as they all rode together, talking the matter over. It is very important that it should be done in a natural way, for if he thought that we were only trying to gain time, he would refuse to have any more to say to us. I think Cochrane should do it, as the proposal is his, said Belmont. Pardon me, cried the Frenchman. I will not say a word against our friend the colonel, but it is not possible that a man should be fitted for everything. It will all come to nothing if he attempts it. The priest will see through the colonel. Will he? said the colonel with dignity. Yes, my friend, he will. For like most of your countrymen, you are very wanting in sympathy for the ideas of other people. And it is the great fault which I find with you as a nation. Oh, drop the politics, cried Belmont impatiently. I do not talk politics. What I say is very practical. How can Colonel Cochrane pretend to this priest that he is really interested in his religion, when in effect there is no religion in the world to him outside some little church in which he has been born and bred? I will say this for the Colonel, that I do not believe he is at all a hypocrite, and I am sure that he could not act well enough to deceive such a man as this priest. The colonel sat with a very stiff back, and the blank face of a man who is not quite sure whether he is being complimented or insulted. You can do the talking yourself if you like, said he at last. I should be very glad to be relieved of it. 
I think that I am best fitted for it, since I am equally interested in all creeds. When I ask for information, it is because in verity I desire it, and not because I am playing a part. I certainly think that it would be much better if Monsieur Fardet would undertake it, said Mrs. Belmont with decision. And so the matter was arranged. The sun was now high, and it shone with dazzling brightness upon the bleached bones which lay upon the road. Again the torture of thirst fell upon the little group of survivors, and again, as they rode with withered tongues and crusted lips, a vision of the saloon of the Corosco danced like a mirage before their eyes, and they saw the white napery, the wine-cards by the places, the long necks of the bottles, the siphons upon the sideboard. Sadie, who had borne up so well, became suddenly hysterical, and her shrieks of senseless laughter jarred horribly upon their nerves. Her aunt on one side of her, and Mr. Stevens on the other, did all they could to soothe her, and at last the weary, overstrung girl relapsed into something between a sleep and a faint hanging limp over her pommel, and only kept from falling by the friends who clustered round her. The baggage camels were as weary as their riders, and again and again they had to jerk at their nose-ropes to prevent them from lying down. From horizon to horizon stretched that one huge arc of speckless blue, and up its monstrous concavity crept the inexorable sun, like some splendid but barbarous deity, who claimed the tribute of human suffering as his immemorial right. Their course still lay along the old trade route, but their progress was very slow, and more than once the two emirs rode back together and shook their heads as they looked at the weary baggage camels on which the prisoners were perched. The greatest laggard of all was one which was ridden by a wounded Sudanese soldier. It was limping badly with a strained tendon, and it was only by constant prodding that it could be kept with the others. The emir Wad Ibrahim raised his Remington as the creature hobbled past and sent a bullet through its brain. The wounded man flew forwards out of the high saddle and fell heavily upon the hard track his companions in misfortune looking back saw him stagger to his feet with a dazed face at the same instant a bagara slipped down from his camel with a sword in his hand don't look don't look cried belmont to the ladies and they all rode on with their faces to the south they heard no sound but the bagara passed them a few minutes afterwards he was cleaning his sword upon the hairy neck of his camel, and he glanced at them with a quick, malicious gleam of his teeth as he trotted by. But those who are at the lowest pitch of human misery are at least secured against the future. That vicious, threatening smile, which might once have thrilled them, left them now unmoved, or stirred them at most to vague resentment. There were many things to interest them in this old trade route, had they been in a condition to take notice of them. Here and there along its course 
were the crumbling remains of ancient buildings, so old that no date could be assigned to them, but designed in some far-off civilization to give the travellers shade from the sun or protection from the ever-lawless children of the desert. The mud-bricks with which these refuges were constructed showed that the material had been carried over from the distant Nile. Once upon the top of a little knoll they saw the shattered plinth of a pillar of a red Aswan granite, with a wide-winged symbol of the Egyptian god across it, and the cartouche of the second Ramses beneath. After three thousand years one cannot get away from the ineffaceable footprints of the warrior king. It is surely the most wonderful survival of history that one should still be able to gaze upon him, high-nosed and masterful, as he lies with his powerful arms crossed upon his chest, majestic even in the decay in the Gizeh Museum. To the captives the cartouche was a message of hope, as a sign that they were not outside the sphere of Egypt. They've left their card here once, and they may again, said Belmont, and they all tried to smile. And now they came upon one of the most satisfying sights on which the human eye can ever rest. Here and there in the depressions at either side of the road there had been a thin scurf of green, which meant that water was not very far from the surface. And then, quite suddenly, the track dipped down into a bowl-shaped hollow, with a most dainty group of palm-trees, and a lovely green sward at the bottom of it. The sun gleaming upon that brilliant patch of clear, restful colour, with the dark glow of the bare desert around it, made it shine like the purest emerald in a setting of burnished copper. And then it was not its beauty only, but its promise for the future, water, shade, all that weary travellers could ask for. Even Sadie was revived by the cheery sight, and the spent camels snorted and stepped out more briskly, stretching their long necks and sniffing the air as they went. After the unhomely harshness of the desert, it seemed to all of them that they had never seen anything more beautiful than this. They looked below at the green sward with the dark star-like shadows of the palm-crowns. Then they looked up at those deep green leaves against the rich blue of the sky, and they forgot their impending death in the beauty of that nature to whose bosom they were about to return. The wells in the centre of the grove consisted of seven large and two small saucer-like cavities filled with peat-coloured water enough to form a plentiful supply for any caravan. Camels and men drank it greedily, though it was tainted by the all-pervading natron. The camels were picketed, the Arabs threw their sleeping mats down in the shade, and the prisoners, after receiving a ration of dates and of dora, were told that they might do what they would during the heat of the day, and that the mullah would come to them before sunset. The ladies were given the thicker shade of an acacia tree, and the men lay down under the palms. The great green leaves swished slowly above them. They heard the low hum of the Arab talk and the dull champing of the camels, and then in an instant, by that most mysterious 
and least understood of miracles. One was in a green Irish valley, and another saw the long straight line of Commonwealth Avenue, and a third was dining at a little round table opposite the bust of Nelson in the Army and Navy Club, and for him the swishing of the palm branches had been transformed into the long-drawn hum of Pall Mall. So the spirits went their several ways, wandering back along the strange, untraced tracks of the memory, while the weary, grimy bodies lay senseless under the palm-trees in the oasis of the Libyan desert. End of chapter 7 Read by Lars Rolander